Should you think about picking up Mike Zunino from waivers? We'll ask Mike Podhorzer of Fangraphs next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 6th. It's show number 23 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you, our first full edition of the season. We'll start with player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at a potential closer and a potential ace starter in Philadelphia, a potential breakout bat in San Francisco, and more. And reporting on the American League, Jock Thompson will look at A-Rod and J.J. Hardy going on to the DL, John Danks going on to waivers, Chris Davinsky going on to the rotation, and more. Then we'll have our feature interview with Mike Podhorzer of Fangraphs and the author of the ebook Projecting X 2.0. I'll ask Mike about his projection methods, about expected strikeouts, about some speculative waivers pickups, his studs and duds, and more. Finally, we'll have our regular commentaries from the expert analyst at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Rockies shortstop prospect Brendan Rodgers. Do you think he's blocked a little bit? In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at what happens when Shinsu Chu returns to Texas and the upcoming changes to Cincinnati's rotation. In our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at St. Louis first baseman Matt Adams and Arizona relief pitcher Zach Curtis. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at a Saturday American League matchup or mismatchup, pitting Twins right-hander Ricky Nolasco against the White Sox ace lefty Chris Sale in Chicago. Greg will also look at a Sunday National League tilt, pitting Mets righty Matt Harvey against San Diego righty Andrew Kashner in San Diego, and two more weekend matchups. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the season that ended on April 30th. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The first month is in the books. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Nick, I'd like to start with an opportunity for our listeners to maybe get in on the ground floor of a potential closer this season who currently doesn't have the role, and that's in Philadelphia, where right-hander Hector Neris got a save last Sunday despite allowing an earned run. And then we saw Jean-Marie Gomez blow a save on Wednesday. This story was covered in Playing Time today on Friday at BaseballHQ.com, as well as earlier in the week, Doug Dennis's excellent bullpen buyer's guide column looking at April base performance value leaders. He looked at Hector Neris as well. All the signs seem to be pointing in the right direction for Hector Neris. Yeah, they are indeed. In fact, John Mar Gomez, uh, Gomez has been very good. He's had uh, 10, 10, or 10, 10 save attempts. He's only blown one. So you might think he would have a lot of rope. But the thing to think about with John Mar Gomez is this guy has no track record as a closer. So there's no reason for the manager to simply say, well, this guy's been pitching well for five years. We'll, we'll let him continue. So, and that might not be a problem if he had some, some really solid skills. But to date, his skills have been just okay. 6.5 DOM, 2.4 command, 72 BPV, uh, nothing really to write home about. 
On the other hand, Hector Neris has been developing astronomically this year. Um, Hector Neris, 17 inning pitch, 27 strikeouts, four walks. Uh, that's a 14.0 DOM, 2.1 control, 6.8 command, XARA of 2.09, BPV of 209. So this guy has been lights out so far uh, and certainly looks to be uh, in a position to take over as the closer should, uh, should they decide that Jean-Marc Gomez can no longer do the job. The thing to be careful of on Hector Neris is he, he's had a bit of a, a gopheritis problem in the past. If you go back to a year ago, home run per fly of, uh, of 15%. Uh, this year, home run per fly is at 14%. Uh, has, has only, I think, allowed one of those, but that could be an issue. Um, so I think that's something to keep in mind. But right now, Hector Neris looks very, very good. And in fact, was good a year ago, 121 BPV in 2015. Nick, another factor pointing in Hector Neris's favor is that setup man David Hernandez, who most people figured would be next in line should Gomez falter, actually hurt his leg in an outing on Thursday night. Uh, they said it wasn't serious, but any time a pitcher uh, looked like a knee injury of some kind, uh, he fell awkwardly and, and uh, twisted his knee. So that's another thing pointing in the favor of Hector Neris. This is a, a situation where if Hector Neris is available in your free agent pool, might be a time to go grab him. Yeah, it might be. You know, now's just a time to kind of tuck him away and see what happens. The skills are there. The opportunity may certainly be there. And the fact that he was given the save on uh, Sunday, when uh, the save opportunity on Sunday when uh, Gomez had a night off, uh, also would seem to point in his direction. So now's a chance to grab him cheap and see what happens. And even in a deep National League-only kind of format, Nick, if he's available, while you're waiting for him to take over that saves role, he's not going to do any harm to your whip and uh, ERA because he's uh, such a high strikeout guy, and he seems to be pitching an awful lot of innings. Yeah, he does. He's, he's pitching quite a few innings. He's got 17 innings pitched so far, and what you notice about some of those outings as you, as you go back and look at them is uh, he'll pitch an inning and get three strikeouts, or pitch two innings and get six strikeouts. So... You know, here's a guy who's really getting his getting his outs by the whiff, and, and that certainly helps in whatever format you're in. It sure does. Uh, people seem to think that, you, that a relief pitcher is always going to be a detriment in the strikeout category, but a pitcher like this or your Aroldis Chapmans or guys like that can actually amass nearly as many strikeouts as a fifth starter or sixth starter that you might feel like you have to have on your roster to get the strikeouts. And in fact, of the very high dominance rates of some of these uh, relief pitchers makes them decent, not excellent, but decent strikeout plays in your overall roster management. Yeah, very definitely. Certainly the kind of the kind of guy that you want to take a look at. And just before we leave this topic, I thought it was interesting in Doug Dennis's bullpen's column that he mentioned uh, up till a couple of years ago, maybe even up until last year, when he was doing this list of uh, base performance value leaders for a month, it usually took a BPV of 100, which is a very high BPV, by the way. That's a very uh, an excellent set of skills. This year. The minimum was 200 because there were so many guys in the relief corps who are 100 BPV or better already. Isn't that amazing how much uh, better uh, relief pitching has become in just the last couple of years? It really is. And maybe, maybe you know, there's something, something that might be worth, worth uh, considering and thinking about. Maybe the, um, the, the managers are getting smarter about who they're putting out there in relief and, and watching guys more closely in terms of their ability to throw uh, an inning and do it very, very well. 
or in the case of uh, Hector Neris, multiple innings. And I think that might be a, a, a trend that we see more of as uh, as the seasons go on and managers start to realize you're way better off leaving your Hector Neris is out there to get five strikeouts over two innings than you are to pull him arbitrarily after a single inning and then put some much poorer pitcher out there to get hammered around. It's, uh, it's an interesting time for bullpen management. And then there's the whole idea on the other side that maybe teams are starting to realize they're sh- being too short on their benches with hitters because they're carrying so many situational pitchers that they, when it comes time to pinch hit late in a game, you can't because you don't have a, a hitter left on the bench. Uh, talking about Philadelphia pitching, they've been a surprise team in general so far, led by two remarkable young starters, uh, Vince Velasquez. We've talked about him, Nick, in past podcasts, as well as young right-hander Aaron Nola. And Nick, uh, I got to say, Nola looks fantastic. 283 ERA, his whip is under one, and 44 strikeouts in 40 innings, better than a strikeout per inning. That's really good. Nola's name popped up in Stephen Nickrand's Starting Pitching Buyer's Guide column this week and in Brent Hershey's Speculator column, which he calls Snap Judgments. What are Brent and Stephen saying about Aaron Nola? Well, you know, the other thing about Aaron Nola that, that makes it fun for me to talk about, Aaron Nola pitched for LSU, so I got a chance to watch him for a while. I thought last year when they were talking about, you know, just the number two upside, that, that, that all that was wrong because the guy was a really, really top-flight pitcher at LSU, and now we're beginning to think that maybe number two upside was not what we should be talking about, but, you know, this guy has, has improved so far his control and his dominance from a year ago. He's got a 67% first pitch strike rates, 12% swinging strikes. Uh, overall skill package is really of ace quality up through the first, uh, his first uh, uh, five starts. So, with um, well, Philadelphia, he's not going to rack, rack up a whole lot of wins, but this guy is beginning to look like a, in his second his second year in the league, like he could really become a, a, an ace. Uh, in fact, right now, uh, ERA of 2.93, XERA of 2.59, uh, 164 BPV. If Aaron Nola is uh, not on somebody's roster or is easily available from some owner that looks at him as this, this started just a fluke, it probably isn't. Uh, this guy, This guy can really bring it. I'll tell you what, Nick, I'll be the devil's advocate on this. And uh, my concern here is with his dominance rate. It's uh, almost at 10 strikeouts per nine. That's a very big jump over the 7.9 he posted last year in 13 starts with pretty much the same velocity and a, a little uptick here in first pitch strike and swinging strike, but not big jumps in those things. In the minors, he was more like a 7.5, 7.6 than a 10 strikeouts per nine guy as well. Does this sudden spurt in dominance rate concern you in that it might be due to regress downwards because uh, his baseline is actually lower. This is quite surprising, and sometimes surprises don't last. Well, well maybe not, because if you look at the control ratio, that's the other thing to take a look at. Uh, Nola was always the kind of guy who could paint the corners and uh, and just get the ball on, on, the, on the plate. And last year, 2.2 control. This year, control has dropped to 1.6. So walking fewer guys and uh, maybe, maybe, maybe being more successful at hitting the corners, and that could make a difference. In six starts this year, he's gone exactly seven innings, except for uh, one 5.0 innings dud, seven earned runs against Washington. The experts community, Nick, is already saying that the Phil's probably going nowhere. That could change. But if they start to struggle in the overall standings, they could have uh, Aaron Nola and Vince Velasquez on some sort of limit, an innings limit, a pitch count limit. So that I think that's something that people need to be aware of if they're thinking about trading in a this-year situation. Yeah, I think that's true. That's very, very true. I mean, Nola, at age 23, Nola's the kind of guy you don't want to, uh, to overuse uh, in a situation where you're, you're not going anywhere. So, and the same with Velasquez. So I think that's very true. And 
hopefully the uh, for for their sake hopefully the Phillies will be very very careful with uh, with their innings management Brent Hershey's snap judgment speculator column also looked at Matt Harvey, the fine starting pitcher for the Mets, and he has not been too good so far, Nick. A 476 ERA, his whip is over 150, and his dominance rate, which used to be something of his uh, calling card, is way down to around 6.5 strikeouts per nine. That's very pedestrian for Matt Harvey. Indeed, in the modern game, it's a p- pretty pedestrian level just generally. What did Brent say about Harvey and his obvious struggles so far this season? Well, the other bad things to look at about Matt Harvey that perhaps are are not good things. Velocity is down all about 1.8 miles an hour. That's not a good thing. Swinging strike rate is down 2%. That's not a good thing. Um, so, and, and the other thing that's happening is control is, is off at this point. 1.8 control a year ago, 2.9 so far this year. Uh, and uh, giving up more line drives than he did a year ago. Fewer ground balls, more line drives. Again, that's not a good thing. So, uh, you know, Matt Harvey, I think, is someone you've got to take a very, very a careful look at and uh you know brent's uh, brent's take was uh this may be a uh, a 4.0 era pitcher this season instead of the 3.0 era we were getting a year ago so sure he's had some bad luck but there's nothing right now saying that he's going to turn things around very quickly the elephant in the room for me, Nick, in all of this is uh, Matt Harvey very famously is coming off of tommy john surgery a couple of years ago and uh I'm going to talk about this also a little later on with Mike Podhorzer in the feature guest interview, but there's a, there's a belief out there that I've read that says when you start seeing control problems that you might be looking at an elbow issue. And of course, Tommy John surgery in the past means he's had that elbow injury. Are you at all concerned that uh, Matt Harvey's uh, elbow is going to uh, re-erupt and cause problems for him and for his fantasy owners? I think you always have to be concerned with that, with a guy who has a history of, uh, of elbow problems and uh, so you're right that kind of control issue beginning uh, is the sort of thing that uh, that could be an issue down the road so if I were Matt Harvey I might be trying to sell uh, probably can't sell high on him with what he's doing uh, but I certainly might be looking to sell at the moment if there's an owner out there willing to take him on because uh, like you I'm not sure he'll make it through the season. And even if he does, uh, you, if you did want to trade him, you could point to some of the projections. For instance, BaseballHQ.com projects Harvey to be a $20-plus pitcher the rest of the way with 147 strikeouts in 149 remaining innings, so around a strikeout per inning. And that would be fantastic, except it's uh, two and a half strikeouts more than he's actually doing right now. And I think his past record and his notoriety or reputation could help you make a deal. And I agree with you. I think the time to make that deal could be now. Right, very definitely. Now, before things uh, continue to be, while April still looks like a fluke, before we continue to get a second month of uh, this kind of performance. Stephen Nickrand, we mentioned, uh, also does a batting buyer's guide column, and in his review of April base performance value leaders there, he had a couple of interesting names I'd like to talk about with you, Nick. Uh, The first is Brandon Belt of the Giants. Nick, it seems we've been waiting an awful long time for Belt to put it all together, so is this finally... Brandon Belt putting it all together? Maybe so. I mean, you look at you look at what he did in uh, uh, in April, and it doesn't look all that all that great. Three home runs during the month is certainly nothing compared to what uh, Trevor Story's been doing or Nolan Arenado's been doing. So, might might think his power is still about what it was, but we're getting a 159 expected power index, uh, which would suggest that uh, there's some latent power. Uh, power there. And then the other things that's happening in April, an 83% contact rate, which is up, an 18% walk rate, which is up, 
Those are things that we haven't seen from Brandon Belt before. And so maybe he's beginning to mature a bit at the plate. So I think there's certainly good signs for Brandon Belt here. Uh, and maybe the kind of guy that uh, is worth, uh, worth looking at as a potential breakout candidate once again. Now, just a moment ago, we were talking about this sudden surge in Aaron Nola's strikeout rate and whether that's sustainable given the small sample and his history. Uh, I'm wondering uh, the same thing about Belt, but not so much what he's been doing as far as his results, but more his skills. You mentioned that his uh, walk rate is way up around 18%. His contact rate is over 80%. Historically, Belt's contact rate in the major leagues has been around 70%, 72 74 like that, and his walk rate has peaked at 10%. So all of a sudden, we're seeing his contact up 12 points in April, and his walk rate has practically doubled. Now, are you worried that such a big spike in skills rather than outcomes could be just a variance based on a relatively small sample? Perhaps. I mean, that's certainly possible. We're looking at a sample of 98 at-bats, but, you know, 98 at-bats is a fifth or a sixth of a season, so... Uh, maybe the sample is not as small as we would think it would be. Uh, and the other thing to look at is, you know, he's at a good age. He's 28 years old. He's been around a while, beginning maybe to, to figure some things out at the plate. Maybe he's finally got a, a, a hitting coach that's, that's made some difference for him in terms of, uh, of what he's looking at. We're looking at an expected batting average right now of 286 compared to 257 a year ago. So I think this, this surge in skills may be sustainable. You know, we've always said at Baseball HQ that once you display a skill, you own it. And I think this sample size is large enough that we've seen him display this skill in terms of contact rate and, and uh, batting eye. And so uh, it might be some slippage as he falls back into old habits, uh, but there's always a chance, uh, or, or a very good chance, I would think, that even if he does slip, he can find his way back into the kind of contact rate and batting eye that he's displayed this past month. It's an interesting thing to think about because results will ebb and flow. We know based on, you know, did the fielder happen to be standing one step too far to his left kind of situations or was the wind blowing out, but skills are skills. And uh, there are research um, methods that say that uh, these various skills and various outcomes and rates stabilize at different points over a year. For instance, it takes uh, uh, almost a thousand at bats for batting average to stabilize at a point where you can say, "I believe this is uh, this guy's skill." Balls and uh, batting average on balls and player hit rate around 850 or so, and. Uh, Walks and strikeouts are down around 120 plate appearances for walks, just 60 for strikeouts. So it looks like what you say is correct, that Brandon Belt could indeed be mastering a new skill. And if he has mastered that new skill, that there's a lot of upside here. There very, very is, definitely. And at this point, the breakout hasn't happened, so it might be a good time to uh, see if you can make a trade for Brandon Belt. The other batter I wanted to mention from Stephen Nickran's uh, April base performance value leaders is St. Louis shortstop Al Edmus Diaz. Uh, Stefan says Diaz came out of nowhere, and those are quotes, to become one of the National League's best hitters in April. He had four homers, 13 RBIs, uh, an OPS around 1,200. I'm always skeptical, Nick, when I hear about players coming out of nowhere. Yeah, I, I am too. And, you know, so so the guy had a hot April, but you got to look at, what, uh, at what, what's happened uh, and what the skills are here. And, and what you've got to really look at with Diaz the last week, he's three for 19. So uh, April suddenly doesn't look so good as we had into May. Uh, as he hit him 158 instead of over 400. First of all, we know the guy's not going to hit over 400 at, at any point in time. But a 38% hit rate and a, a 90% contact rate. Uh, and those are just not the kind of skills we, we, we expect in a, in a young player with, with no history, basically. So uh, if you got in on the ground floor and got a good April out of him, uh, congratulations. Now I think is a really great time to sell high before he puts up a few more three for 19 weeks.
And, of course, the Cardinals have Johnny Peralta on the DL with a torn thumb ligament. Latest news I saw about that is that his rehab is ahead of schedule. He thinks he could be back by early June, and even if you say mid-June, you're talking about maybe five or six weeks more playing time for Diaz. Johnny Peralta will take that role when he gets back. Yeah, he will indeed. Uh, that, that's, that's his role as soon as he gets back, and the Cardinals are just filling in. So at most you get another another maybe month and a half out of Diaz. And so uh, now is the time for to, to uh, tell your league mates they're getting a bargain if they can uh, trade for him. Assuming they're not paying a whole lot of attention. Uh, Nick, thanks a million. We'll talk to you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the National League here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move on to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, PD. How you doing? Probably a little better than Angels fans like you, Jock. Uh, uh, they got the bad news. The Angels' already weak starting rotation took a devastating blow with Garrett Richards going to the DL with a tear in his ulnar collateral ligament. That means Tommy John surgery. He'll be out for 18 months or so. This looks really bad for him, and it looks really bad for the Angels. Yeah, it really does. And honestly, um, I've, I've watched Garrett obviously a lot out here. He hasn't been the same since 2014 in that knee injury. And while this news is always a shock when you when you hear it, and it's yeah, it's discouraging for Angel fans. I honestly can't say that I'm that surprised by it when I think about it. He just hasn't looked. He hasn't ever looked the same for a long time, and uh, he he really looked different this year. Jock, do you think this is one of those instances where people kind of underestimate a seemingly unrelated injury, like a, a knee injury to a pitcher? But kinesiologists tell us that the pitching mechanism is complicated and it's all linked in a kind of a chain mechanism. And so we should know that a knee injury has the potential to cause ramifications up the chain towards the pitching arm and the elbow. I'm not saying that that always happened, but is this something we need to be paying more attention to as fantasy players? Yeah, I think so. I think there's always a chance of a chain reaction, and uh, and and people have talked about it. Uh, and, and it's and it's different for it's different for everybody. It's different for every pitcher. But yeah, when a when a pitcher gets an injury like uh, like Garrett had the knee injury, uh, there's always a chance that it could lead to something else down the road. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of too bad. It is too bad, but in the meantime, the Angels have to do something. Where do they go from here with that uh, less than studly rotation? Well, obviously, they have a lot of wobbly pieces with a lot of ifs, ands, or buts. Hector Santiago is suddenly the ace, which, uh, whereas Hector's done well this year, that's not a good thing. Uh, Nick Tropiano right now is our second-best pitcher, and, and at best, he has back-of-the-rotation upside, and his command's been shaky. Matt Shoemaker will return from AAA. He's been awful all year. Jared Weaver's job looks safe, even though he's been pretty bad. Um, they'll probably give Corey Rasmus a shot, uh, and they'll expand and accelerate uh, uh, the AAA to bullpen shuttle that most clubs utilize. Um, they're, they're probably going to hope and pray that uh, Tyler Skaggs really is just having biceps tendonitis and nothing else, knock on wood, and hope that he can return to the rotation sometime before the All-Star break, and they'll hope that C.J. Wilson can return from the D.L., um, in the meantime, they'll they'll start giving some of their better minor league names a chance or a look at least. Like Nate Smith is a 24 year old with, again, just back of the rotation upside. He's he's doing fairly well in Salt Lake AAA this year, the 3.79 ERA with 31 strikeouts and 36 inning 
innings pitch but there's really nobody in this system or and and they're not going to find anybody that's going to replace Garrett Richards and of course there was other news today that suggests Andrew Heaney's not going to be any help for the Angels either yeah, um, they had news on him come out today too. He's obviously the, the the formal report has been that he has a strained flexor flexor muscle, but now reportedly he also has damage to his ulnar collateral ligament. Uh, uh, it's not as bad as Richards. Um, they may try to rehab it, but uh, it's very possible that he could be also be going under undergoing Tommy John surgery. So not a great day for the Angel pitching staff. Not a great day for Garrett Richards' owners either. I'm one of them in one of my leagues. Pretty hard spot to fill. Uh, Richards' injury, of course, just one of several that they've uh, announced this week. We'll talk about Alex Rodriguez in just a few minutes, but J.J. Hardy of the Orioles broke his foot, and he's going to be out at least four weeks, perhaps as many as eight weeks. Matt Dodge covered this in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What do the Orioles do to replace J.J. Hardy? Well, since Hardy got injured, Manny Machado has taken the first three games there, and he, and actually he now qualifies at shortstop in uh, 25 leagues entering Friday. And longer term, this is really good news for Manny Machado, keeper league owner, since he needs just 13 more games to get 20 for the year and, and 2017 qualification. Um, Matt seems to think that the Orioles will likely opt for defense. It's probably a good call, at least at times. And uh, they had veteran Paul Janish down at uh, AAA Norfolk. He was on paternity leave at the time of the injury. Matt believes he'll join the Orioles soon. Now, Janish has a career Major League batting average of 216 in 1,100 at bat, so he's not going to be helpful fantasy-wise. And as a right-handed batter with a 209 batting average uh, versus righties, uh, this may keep Machado at shortstop a lot, and it could help veteran Ryan Flaherty steal some at bats at third base. Now, that's not necessarily good news for fantasy owners either. Flaherty's always teased this with his power, but uh, strictly a near Mendoza line batting average. Any chance Pedro Alvarez fills in at third base with Machado shifting over to short? Yeah, as long as Pedro's on the roster and as long as he can still pop a home run occasionally, uh, he'll get some third base time. Uh, it's kind of a wait-and-see revolving door thing with, uh, with Baltimore. They have a lot of pieces they can plug into a lot of different places. Well, Jock, of course, Manny Machado was a shortstop as a prospect, but they moved him to third base when he came to the Orioles at age 19. He's played there ever since. He had seven games at shortstop in 2015. But how confident can we be that Manny Machado can carry the defensive load at shortstop? Because if he can't, could that spill over and bother him at the plate? Yeah, I mean, it can't help. I mean, I've got to believe that he's he's definitely not superior to, to someone like Paul Janish. He's probably gotten bigger. He's probably gotten slower. Um, he, he may be passable, but uh, again, I you know, I think Janish is going to get his reps, and I think the Orioles will probably keep their eye out uh, on the uh, free agent market and waiver wire to see uh, what else can come available. I still think they like him at third base better than short. Jock, we had some news coming out of the league-leading Chicago White Sox organization uh, that can only inspire the comment, what were they waiting for? The White Sox have waived John Danks, who's having a horrible year. Alex Becky wrote about this for Playing Time today. Eric Johnson, a one-time prospect, got the start on Thursday. But what is the outlook for the league-leading White Sox rotation? You know, Johnson's one of those guys who puts up good AAA numbers, and he, he looks interesting from a distance, and, and he'll have an impressive outing every now and then. I watched him strike out 10 hitters in six innings last year, but ultimately, both his control and command waver way too often. He gives up too many home runs, and he, and he only pitches with par to subpar velocity. 
I just don't see him lasting that long as the weather begins to warm up in the cell. And in fact, he he, he pitched on uh, Thursday night and he lasted only five innings. He gave up four runs, three walks, two homers. It was his first start. He was immediately sent back to AAA. Um, he, he's a back of the rotation guy. Um, I don't know. You know, I boy, I, I I wouldn't put too much stock in him. Some fantasy expert really like Eric Johnson, but I, I think I agree with you, Jock. He's had chances to establish himself in the minors and at the major league level, and I just don't think he's done it. So who else might Baltimore be looking at? Maybe Miguel Gonzalez? Yeah, they have Miguel Gonzalez, and he's already made one unsuccessful start and been sent back. Um, he's probably going to get the next start. Uh, this is a guy, obviously, who had some effective years in Baltimore between 2012 and 14, but his peripherals even then suggested he was living on borrowed time. He was striking out a little over six hitters a game, walking uh, around three batters a game, and he always gave up too many home runs. And the roof finally fell in on him last year, and Baltimore waved him at the beginning of the year. Um, a, another guy who, who I think is still interesting, but even in deep leagues I would only be watching right now, is Jacob Turner. Once a highly regarded first-round Detroit prospect, but he, he struggled and he had some injuries. Um, Chicago is his fourth organization. That said, he's still just 24. He throws hard, and he still generates ground balls. He's, he's one to watch, uh, even though I probably wouldn't take a flyer on him immediately. You know, Jock, out of the bunch you've mentioned, I think I like Jacob Turner the most. He's a former top prospect, as you said. We know that Gonzalez and Johnson have shown us who they are, and who they are isn't really that terrific. I think Turner has a better pedigree, and therefore he might be the one of the guys who could really explode or, or deliver way more than we expect in that rotation. Maybe he's just one of those guys, Jock, it took a while for him to figure everything out and to catch on to what he's supposed to be doing out there. Yeah, I agree, and he's not doing badly in AAA. He struck out 27 in his first 27 innings. He's got a, a 3.04 ERA. He's he's walking too many hitters. Um, once he kicks a little more rust off, if he throws in a few more a few more good starts, if pitching is scarce in your deep league, definitely uh, jump on Jacob Turner. More rotation trouble to talk about in Houston, not injury-related, but their opening day rotation, when you look at them, they're all pitching pretty poorly. Uh, Houston's in last place, largely as a result. They've benched Scott Feldman and moved a right-hander Chris Davinsky into his spot. And I think, Jock, uh, Davinsky actually looked pretty okay his first couple of starts. He's, he's pitched two very effective games. Um, he's, he's gone six innings. He's, he's held the opposition. He's kept his team in the game. He gave up one run the other night, uh, uh, struck out six hitters. Um, he's an interesting guy, and now Houston is left with the decision, uh, what are they going to do now with Lance McCullers coming back? McCullers has been on the DL all season with a strained shoulder. They've been babing him just because it's a, it's obviously a million-dollar arm and they want to keep him whole, and they had an innings cap for him anyway. But now they have a choice to make, and it's going to be interesting to see who they choose, who who he's going to replace in this rotation. Of all the guys who are uh, maybe in some trouble, Jock, Mike Fires looks like the guy who's really on the hot seat. Yeah, Fires has struggled with a 5.35 ERA over his first 34 innings, but his BPIs are better than this. He actually has a 3.75 expected ERA, which is about in line with his history, both ERA and expected uh, ERA. He's walked just four batters all year long. Part of his struggles have to do with a horrible 24% home run per fly ball rate that should calm down, again, based on his history. The real question is how much rope will management give him? He was pulled from his last start with just two outs in the fifth inning, and the Astros holding a five-run lead. 
the question is, will they dump him and leave Davinsky, who is, is far less proven in the rotation? What's interesting is that Fires has actually pitched as well, if not better, than names like Dallas Keuchel, Colin McHugh, and Doug Fister. But when I'm looking at this, he could be a casualty, at least for now. Finally, Jock, I mentioned earlier, Alex Rodriguez goes on the DL. He's got a hamstring strain. Uh, New York is already struggling offensively. Not that losing A-Rod is going to make that big a difference the way he's been playing, but Matt Dodge wrote about this in playing time today. What are the Yankees going to do? Well, Matt notes that if there is a silver lining for, for New York, it's, it's, the, it's that it's the DH slot that uh, A-Rod is vacating, which means that the Yankees can cycle any number of names through it in hopes that someone gets hot. Um, Dustin Ackley, a left-handed hitter, Aaron Hicks, who's a switch hitter, look like the primary beneficiaries for now. Perhaps in a bit of a platoon since Hicks has done more career-wise versus left uh, versus lefties. That said, uh, um, I'm sorry, um, yeah, Hicks has done more career-wise. I'm looking at Ackley's left-handedness here. Um, that said, Hicks is likely a little more high regarded at this point in his career and is a very good outfielder, suggesting that he can move there and let Beltran, Carlos Beltran, grab a few at-bats at DH2. Neither Hicks nor Ackley has done very well in the beginning of the year. Um, uh, Hicks is 3 for 33, Ackley's 2 for 21. They've been part of the Yankee problem off the bench. Uh, both will get more chances now. Ackley is a little intriguing, actually, in that he showed some small sample pop in his brief uh, 50 at bat audition last year in Yankee Stadium. He hit four home runs. So um, it'll be interesting. Um, either one of these guys could get hot, uh, uh, and they're both going to get more opportunity now. I was in on Hicks like a lot of experts were before the season started, but he's been quite a disappointment for pretty much everybody, I guess, especially the Yankees. I wonder if this is getting towards his last chance to prove something. He flamed out in Minnesota. A lot of people said he was brought up too soon and rushed to the major leagues, but he's had a few years now. I wonder if he's looking at his last chance. When I look at Ackley, I think the advantage he might have is... He does have some background playing second. He can play some outfield, so he gives Joe Girardi that option late in games or depending on other injuries. And I think maybe the main beneficiary in all this might be Carlos Beltran, who we both know has had a lot of injury trouble over the years. Maybe the opportunity to take A-Rod's spot as DH and not play so much outfield will mean that he'll be able to stay on the field a little bit more. Yeah, Beltran will be able to stay whole a lot better at the DH spot than he will in the outfield. Uh, 33 at-bats for Hicks and 21 for Ackley really isn't much of a sample size. It'll be interesting to see if either one of them could get going in part-time play. Well, Jock, I'm glad you're full-time here at Baseball HQ Radio. I really appreciate you taking the time to bring us up to date on the latest in the American League, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sure thing, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our Friday feature interview, and we have a terrific guest expert for you, Mike Podhorzer from Fangraphs and the author of the e-book Projecting X. Mike Podhorzer next on Baseball HQ Radio.
Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for our Friday feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by someone I'm a real fan of. He writes for Fangraphs. He wrote the ebook Projecting X 2.0, Mike Podhorzer. Mike, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick, a pleasure to be making my debut. And it's going to be really interesting for me and for our listeners, I'm sure. Before we start going, I always like to ask our experts, how are your teams doing in your experts' leagues and otherwise? No, God, do we have to really start on that sore subject? Let's just say that April was not a great month. Uh, Between injuries and uh, sudden demotions to the minors like Blake Swihart, my labor and tower teams have not done very well. I also had D. Gordon, so that's not great. Uh, My local league team is doing well, and... The thread there is that there were no injuries or head suspensions or demotions. So that's what it really comes down to is it's the team that stays the healthiest and everybody performing up to expectations is usually going to perform well. Yeah, and sometimes that's not uh, even the person with the best plan. A person who comes out of the draft with the best team can have it all submerged. Uh, you mentioned D. Gordon. Gosh, what a blow to any team that had him. Uh, most of the uh, snake drafts that I followed, experts drafts, had D. Gordon going in the low first round, high second round. That's a terrible blow for any team, even in a mixed league. I mean, how do you recover from you know a three hundred batting average and sixty stolen bases? Trade for Billy Hamilton. <laughs> I. I don't know, because when you have a one-category stud like D. Gordon, it's impossible to kind of cobble together replacement stats from free agency. You have to make either a big splash, making a trade, either for a Billy Hamilton, or you just have to maybe increase your power. Because by not having Gordon in your lineup, you probably will be able to increase your power and so if you weren't that great in power to begin with, maybe you'll make up the points there. Otherwise, it's going to be a tough season. Yeah, and in a National League-only format, of course, the the free agent pool is going to be very thin at second base. So even if your plan was to uh, replace the speed with a little extra power, there's not a lot to choose from there, so you're really hamstrung. And the worst thing about the Gordon thing is that it just absolutely came out of, you should forgive the expression, it came out of left field. Most players, we know that they have injury risk or age risk or you know decline risk, but D. Gordon had none of those things. And yet all of a sudden, Kapow, whoever had him on their rosters is really takes one right in the right in the uh behind with absolutely no warning oh you didn't see that one coming that big power spike that d gordon displayed i mean it was quite obvious that he was on peds right (laughs) i think it does make an interesting point though that we don't really understand how these substances are being used and for what purpose the the fallback position is yes it's power hitters and they're all trying to muscle up but there may be a lot awful lot of other reasons that players are taking these things for instance i don't know that it's a coincidence but d gordon went from being kind of a 240 250 ish hitter to a batting champion uh, all, kind of all of a sudden, and while it's not home runs, hitting the ball on the ground harder can't but help but uh, help a guy like uh, D. Gordon pick up a few extra infield base hits, a few a few that sneak through, and so forth. Yeah, bottom line is that we're still not exactly sure what effects the PEDs have on player performance, and it's a lesson that it's very difficult to predict who is actually benefiting from taking it. 
And in fact, now that I think about it, most of the guys who have been caught, or a lot of them anyway, are not typical power hitters. There's been a lot of sort of light hitting middle infielder types, and maybe they're just trying to stay healthy, trying to recover from injury. Uh, Ron Chandler, who's done a lot of forecasting, has said the worst thing about PEDs is that they really mess up your ability to forecast player projections. And you're really well known in the fantasy baseball world, Mike, for your projection system, which you wrote about in a book called Projecting X. Uh, For listeners not familiar, give us the lowdown on how you produce your projections and the book Projecting X. So I think the key to the methodology that I explain in the ebook is that what you really want to do is break down all of the metrics into the component parts that drive that metric. So for example, we're not projecting home runs. What you want to do is project the underlying skills that drive home run totals for a hitter. For example, strikeout rate, fly ball rate, home run per fly ball rate. Those three in combination is what produces uh, a home run projection. So obviously, the more contact a hitter makes, the more opportunities he has to hit a home run. The more fly balls he hits, the more opportunities. And the higher the home run per fly ball rate, obviously, the higher the home run total. So that's the type of theory that I describe in the ebook and in, in how to project players more accurately rather than projecting home runs or RBIs or stolen bases manually uh, directly. It's really all about the underlying components of those rates. There are lots of fantasy projection systems out there, and most of them are basically three-year weighted averages, whether you're talking about the weighted averages of home runs or the weighted averages of fly balls and all those other uh, rate-based metrics that you talked about. How does your system differ from those others? So that's the issue, is that what they're doing is they're regressing the actual raw numbers, the home runs, the, the ERA, but it ignores skills, growth, or decline in specific metrics. So if a hitter had a a fly ball rate spike, that might be the explanation for an increase in home runs. So now the question is, can he sustain the fly ball rate spike? I don't care yet if he can sustain the increase in home runs. I want to know about the fly ball rate spike, because that is what was driving the home run total. The projection systems that just look at home runs, they're not aware of what was driving the home run total. They're just looking at the three-year trend, the age, and either believing in the home run spike or not. But when you get to the underlying metrics and are able to determine exactly what skills are driving that growth or decline, then you have a much easier time making forecasts because those are metrics that stabilize a lot more quickly and they correlate much better from year to year than the raw output numbers like home runs. Well, that raises an interesting question. You mentioned the the, the rate at which these uh, statistics uh, stabilize. That is, it sometimes takes uh, 100 at-bats or, pl- or plate appearances or 1,000, depending on what you're looking at. And uh, the, the fly ball rate, you say, stabilizes relatively quickly. But how confident can you be that a, that a fellow who has a 35% fly ball rate in year one and a 45% fly ball rate in year two is going to be able to sustain that year two fly ball rate Without knowing, has he made changes in his swing? Has he got a new batting coach? Uh, how do you assess that increase 
in the raw skill because when you're down at the level of the raw skill, you're really kind of at the bottom uh, of the math, at least. Yeah, I mean, that's always a difficult question. And the mantra really always has to be regression, regression, regression. The majority of the time, the right answer is that regress that player back toward their career average. So the guy that goes from 35 to 45%, will most likely drop back down closer to the 35% range the following year. However, that's not enough for me. I'm not going to blindly project the decline. I'm going to do a Google search. I'm going to find whatever I can on that player and see if I can find some information, some news about any sort of swing change or mechanical change, any sort of change that might explain why his batted ball distribution has changed during the season. If I can't find anything, I'm probably going to regress all the way back down. If I could find something, for example, Jose Batista, many, many years ago during his breakout, then with that explanation potentially meaning he can sustain it, then I'll probably regress a lot less, but you still got to bake in some regression just in case you're wrong. So if I can summarize, and uh, please tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but you're going to be somewhat skeptical of a sudden change in a skill level absent any kind of explanation for it. And if you find the explanation, you're still going to be at least a little skeptical. Absolutely. That was summed up better than I could have ever summed it up. Well, that's why they pay me the big bucks so over here in the host chair. Yeah. Uh, Mike, what's the biggest error that owners make in using projections, whether yours or others? So the issue is, is that a projection is one number. So owners see one number, and they don't realize that really it's actually just an average of a range of possibilities for that player. So we can look at a 20-home run projection, but there might be a a 10% chance this player hits 37 home runs or 7 home runs. So there's a, a huge range of outcomes that are associated with every projected line, and the younger and the more inexperienced players probably have a greater range of outcomes, whereas the veteran is going to have a much narrow, narrower range of outcomes. So when you're looking at a projected line, 20 home runs from a young player and a veteran isn't exactly created equal. And, and so a lot of times in a shallower league, you might want to go for the upside in the younger 20 home run guy, even though they have the same projection it's not created equal, and, and the upside would be the guy with the greater range of outcomes, the young guy. Also the greater downside risk, though, right? Absolutely. But in a league that is, let's say, 12 teams and shallower, the free agent pool is much more plentiful than a mono league. And so if you miss on one of your late-round breakout guys, then it's a lot easier to pick up a replacement than it is in in an all-only league. So I always advise going for the upside in shallower leagues and going a little safer in deeper leagues. You told Major League Baseball's uh, show, MLB.com, you had uh, a bit of a promotional appearance for the ebook Projecting X, and you talked about a limit to the accuracy of projections and that no matter how hard we try, they're never going to be perfect. Could you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, well, what it really comes down to is that we're projecting human beings. And human beings do things that 
are unexpected. And so we don't know about a lot of things that are affecting a player's life, for example. Who knows if a, a player was recently divorced and that's affecting them emotionally and they can't shake that at the plate until their strikeout rate spikes. We don't know that. So it's basically a lack of full information, and we're never going to get full information. Right now, StatCast is revolutionizing baseball statistics. We have exit velocity and spin rate and all this fun stuff, and we haven't had that in previous years. So this is giving us more information, but we're never going to have all the information. And without having all the information, we're never going to get to perfect projections. We're going to incrementally improve our projections every year, but there's going to be a limit at which point we can't really improve any further. Yeah, you mentioned divorce. I remember one year, Frank Thomas, it turned out after a fairly poor season, it turned out he was going through a very messy and personally devastating uh, divorce action and uh, it really cost him a full year of, of terrific stats. And those kind of things, if you don't know they're happening, they just catch everybody by surprise in the projecting business and in the fantasy ownership business, I guess. Uh, since you first uh, published the ebook Projecting X, you've come out with a new edition called uh, Version 2.0. What's new and cool in it? So there are new methods for projecting uh, several of the metrics, such as BABIP, or batting average on balls in play, RBIs, runs scored, and stolen bases. And it essentially does what I've, I mentioned earlier about breaking these metrics down into their components and turning them into rate stats. So instead of projecting runs scored, straight up looking at Mike Trout, oh, he scored 110 runs last year, 110 three the year before, all right, we'll go with 108 this year. Instead, I'm calculating the runs per times on base that Trout has achieved the last couple of years, and then I'm adding back in home runs because home runs, of course, is an automatic run scored, and I'm using that as my trend line and projecting runs per times on base to then project runs scored. And what that does is that it automatically factors in any changes in on base percentage, any changes in power, and I could also adjust for games played. So if he's coming off of an injury, it's much easier for me to project using a ratio that then turns into a counting stat than just going straight with a counting stat. Does it not also open you to the risk of misprojecting the times on base and therefore uh, having the right ratio but getting the outcome wrong because you got the times on base wrong? Yes, it does. However, the underlying metrics, getting back to the correlation and stabilizing points, the underlying metrics that are being used are a lot more stable from year to year than the raw counting stats like RBIs. So if you're using better correlating metrics that are an indication of actual skill rather than what the surrounding cast is doing, then uh, I think it does a better job, although not perfect, of course. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Mike Podhorzer from Fangraphs and the ebook Projecting X, now out with a new volume 2.0. And uh, Mike, a couple of years ago, you came up with an expected strikeout metric. I thought this was really interesting, and it was based on three strike type rates. That is, the kinds of strikes that are being uh, performed by pitchers. These stats are available to anybody who can look at BaseballReference.com, so they're they're good that way. It's nice and a nice open kind of source thing. So we look at a pitcher's 
strike rate looking, strike rate swinging, and strikes foul as their percentages and the overall rate of strikes thrown. Why did you choose those percentages, and how accurate is the metric looking backwards? When I started looking over coming up with this metric, and, and first of all, because I do my own projections, I'm always searching for better ways to project skills. So strikeout rate wasn't good enough for me. I wanted to come up with an expected strikeout rate because we know that in every single metric on a seasonal basis, there's some sort of luck involved, and I want to do my best to strip out that luck and be left with the skill. So that's what led to coming up with an expected strikeout rate metric. And uh, I looked on Baseball Reference. They have a host of very advanced metrics that you can't find anywhere else. And just logically thinking about what, kind of metrics might drive a strikeout rate, uh, it was pretty clear that looking at types of strikes thrown would probably be uh, strong predictors. And uh, I first ran correlation tests to, to see which metrics were highly correlated, and all the strike types, of course, were highly correlated, and they also correlate pretty well from year to year, which is important. And uh, we found that Swinging strike is the best predictor of strikeout rates. And it's not perfect because there are a lot of guys that have a high swinging strike rate and they don't have a high strikeout rate because, for whatever reason, they don't get a lot of called strikes. And so that oftentimes is a missing ingredient. I know Jaime Garcia is a good example uh, for the last couple of years. He always gets a lot of swinging strikes, but just due to the nature of his stuff, he doesn't get a lot of called strikes. So his strikeout rate is a little lower than his swinging strike rate suggests, which is why the expected strikeout rate that takes all the strike type rates into account, why that's an important metric to look at. I was thinking that there would be pitchers who get a lot of swinging strikes because they're overpowering, but they lack control just in general, and that could mean that uh, hitters learn to lay off the stuff that's not close. I mean, they're going to swing and miss at the stuff that's close, but there's a lot of pitches that are just so out of the strike zone that they don't even don't even matter, and, and I, I think that makes a lot of sense intuitively to me, and it's good to know that sometimes intuitive ideas bear the test of, uh, of research. Uh, in a Fangraphs article earlier this week, you were using expected strikes strikeout percentage versus actual strikeout percentage to identify pitchers you thought would see some growth in their strikeout rates this year. Uh, what did you find in that research? And give us a couple of names. Well, it's always interesting to come up with these lists because you never know what kind of names are going to show up. And I feel like looking down the list of names, I was actually bearish on the majority of the guys that seemingly are strikeout rate surgers. And it just goes to show that it's not all about strikeouts. There are a lot more that goes into performance than just strikeouts. And I wanted to touch on some guys that I'm actually uh, curious about, and uh, one of them is Matt Harvey, because obviously his strikeout rate is down significantly. So it was a nice sign that his strikeout rate is seemingly lower than it should be based on my expected strikeout rate metric, but it's still nowhere near where we would expect it to be. So even if it reached that XK percentage mark, that would still represent a disappointment. And, and the issue here is fastball velocity is down a mile and a half. Every single one of his pitches is generating uh, a whiff rate below his uh, average and actually would represent career lows for all of his pitches. 
That's a major problem, whether it's mechanical or injury-related. For a guy that recently had Tommy John surgery, it's a major concern. And if I was an owner, I would be nervous. Uh, I, I wouldn't buy low here. I don't know if I would sell low, but he's somebody to monitor uh, in the next month, see if his velocity returns, and see if his strikeouts return. And when you say whiff rate, you mean swing and miss rate on that particular pitch? Yes. Did you uh, also identify any pitchers whose actual strikeout rate is currently way over their expected strikeout rate and therefore might be due to, to have a decline? Yeah, so there were a bunch of interesting names, one of which is Patrick Corbin. And Corbin, if you remember, returned from Tommy John surgery last year. He actually had a really encouraging return. His velocity was up. His strikeout rate was strong. He looked great. His control was good as well. And control is always something that comes back last in returnees from Tommy John surgery. So it was a good sign that his control was fine. But this year is a major, major problem. His strikeout rate at the moment is only 14.3%. But my XK percentage thinks it should be even lower at 10.7%, which is obviously terrible. And the problem here is that his velocity is fine, but he's not throwing strikes. His control has completely disappeared, and he's not inducing swinging strikes at all. So that's a major concern. And one thing that I noticed is he's throwing more change-ups at the expense of his sliders. And after coming off of major elbow surgery, you have to wonder, is he doing that to protect his elbow? Is his elbow hurting him? And that change-up is not a good pitch at all. So if he's throwing more of a bad pitch at the expense of his best pitch, then obviously bad things are going to happen, and bad things are happening. So if I was a Corbin owner, I would sell as fast as I can. One of the things that marks good analysis, I think, is that you don't take the outcome of subtracting expected strikeout percent from actual strikeout percent, lay out the list and say, go get these guys. That's step one, and then you have to start looking into the why of it. That's uh, something that Stephen Nickrand at Baseball HQ does all the time with his starting pitcher reports, lays out who's on the table, but then he says, well, wait a second, let's look at each one of these guys and make sure that it's not fluky or that it's not a, a anomalous in some way, could could be an outlier career-wise or, or those kind of things. And the example I saw in the article you had about potential strikeout rate surgers was Cole Hamels. You said that his strikeout rate, based on expected strikeout rate, should be due to go up a little bit, and yet you said owners should be concerned for a completely different reason, and that's where the investigation comes in. What is your issue with Cole Hamels? Yeah, I mean, the fun part of making these lists is the knee-jerk reaction, of course, is you look at the surgeries list and you want to say, oh, go out and buy them all. But then when you start digging deeper, you find some surprising red flags, and that's exactly what happened with Cole Hamels. And the issue here is we've always known Cole Hamels to have excellent control. His strike percentages, which drives my expected strikeout rate, have always been consistent uh, above the league average. But all of a sudden this year, his strike percentage has completely tumbled, and it's now below the league average, sitting at a career low. And that's not expected. I mean, that's surprising. It's not like he's at an age where you would expect that his control would just disappear. So the fact that he is not throwing strikes, he's now going to be in the AL for a full season for the first time ever, and 
his home park is uh, very favorable to hitters. So while he still has the shiny sub-3 ERA, I think he's actually a prime sell-high candidate. And I would be very worried about that lack of control and if there's something wrong with his mechanics or he's hiding an injury. His walk rate, we'd expect, uh, given the fact that he's throwing fewer strikes, that means he's throwing more balls. We'd expect his walk rate to be up, and indeed it is, after being 2.6, 2.7 walks per nine innings over the last, geez, five or six years, it's up to 4.5 this year. And uh, I know that there's a truism in uh, baseball starting pitcher, pitching analysis in general, that says... Uh, if you have a drop in velocity, there's a could be a shoulder problem. A loss of control indicates a elbow problem. Are you a believer in that general philosophy, and does that point you towards a, a further reason or a sort of substantive reason to be worried about a guy like Hamels whose walk rate suddenly shoots up this way? Yeah, I've always followed that exact same uh, line of thinking as well, so we must have read it from the same source several years ago. And I find that it's not... Always the case. Uh, for example, Chris Bassett, uh, I believe he left his last start early after a sharp decrease in velocity, and it turns out he has a major elbow problem, might need Tommy John surgery. So it's not always the case where a velocity decline is automatically the shoulder and a control decline is automatically the elbow. Uh, so it, it's not necessarily a el- an elbow issue for Cole Hamels, but... I think either of the two, uh, a sharp decline in velocity or a sharp decline in control, is an indicator of potential injury and something to be concerned about. So whether it's the elbow or the shoulder, I don't think it's as important as the fact that, uh uh-oh, there might be something physically wrong with that pitcher. Sometimes the fun of doing baseball analysis is coming out with some uh, speculative plays. We do that at Baseball HQ in the Speculator column. But you had a Fangraphs piece recently in which you suggested that owners in deep American League uh, mono leagues might want to speculate on Mike Zunino of Seattle. Boy, there's a name that everybody sort of associates with uh, sub-Mendoza batting average and power. Why would we be interested in Mike Zunino outside of the power? Yeah, you know, it's funny because we can talk about this because we're in the same league, and Ron's in our league as well in American League Tout Wars. And I remember reading on Roto World about Mike Zanino performing very well in the minors so far. And since I needed a catcher in our league, I filed it in the back of my head, ooh, I should speculate on Zanino. I didn't write it down. I totally forgot about him. And sure enough, Ron Chandler was the only one to bid on him, and he, he won him. Uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before, which I thought was a really shrewd move. And basically, Chris Iannetta is blocking him. And you have to laugh because Chris Iannetta has never blocked anybody historically. He's not a guy that has ever held the full-time catching job and run with it. I don't think he's received more than 400 plate appearances in many, many years. So if Zanino continues to hit, and he's hit for great power, which he always has, but it's coming with a substantial increase in contact. His strikeout rate is way down, and that's always been his biggest problem. And when he was in the majors, he was always a great framer of pitches, which was all the rage the last couple of years. So defensively, he's very good. So if he continues to hit, keep his strikeout rate down, then I think he'll get the call. I don't think Steve Clevenger is going to be a problem, so he'll take over the the second catcher. duties and eventually if he hits I think he could very well overtake Ionetta 
and uh, get the majority of the time at catcher uh, in Seattle. And of course, getting the time is uh, step one. Not killing you with the time is the other step. And it sounds like you have a, a little bit of reason to be confident that Zanino could help in that regard. You also mentioned another name. Here's a guy who's been bouncing around forever, it seems like, in the big leagues. Uh, Jerry Sands, another big power hitter who can't ever seem to keep a job. Yeah, well, I mean, he seemingly is one of those quadruple-A guys where he shows good performance in the minors, then he makes his way to the majors, he plays here and there sporadically, he does nothing with it, then he gets shipped off to another team. I believe in my article I mentioned that he's been on like five teams in the last five years, which is funny because basically suggests that no team wants him, and yet every team wants him. So who knows how... Major League Baseball organizations are actually evaluating fans. But this is a guy who's shown excellent power in the minor leagues. And in a deep league, you want guys that have some skill, whether it be good speed or good power, and, and he's got good power. He's behind Avisael Garcia in Chicago. But Garcia wasn't good last year, hasn't been good this year, and he's not good defensively, so he's just playing in the DH role. He's currently uh, out a couple of games. I think he has a hamstring issue, and Sands has been taking those at bats, and he's been doing pretty decently. So I could easily see Sands stealing more playing time away, and I don't know what they're going to do with Garcia, but he hasn't uh, grown at all as a hitter. He rarely walks. He hits way too many ground balls, so he's not going to be a power hitter. So uh, it could be a timeshare where Sands slowly takes more playing time away, and with that power, he can provide uh, some, you know, decent AL-only value while he's playing. I think you make an excellent point about the importance of league context in that uh, in a mixed league, this guy's simply not rosterable. In a mixed league, you got to have guys who are doing a little bit of everything or ideally a lot of everything. But in a mixed, in a single league format where you're just trying to pick out anybody who can do anything, a guy who can hit 10 home runs and not do anything else is still going to be really valuable. Yeah, absolutely, and it really uh, validates that discussions about players, you, you need the context of what league format you're talking about, because if you're in a 12-team mixed league, you're going to laugh at the thought of rostering Jerry Sands, but in an AL-only league where our free agent pool is barren, it's, it's laughably bad, but if you can get a guy who can steal you 10 bases or 10 home runs, that's a guy that you should roster on your team. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Mike Podhorzer from Fangraphs and the ebook Projecting X Version 2.0. Check that out. And uh, over the last, uh, since the start of the season, really, Mike, uh, here at Baseball HQ Radio, it seems every week somebody's weighing in on Chris Archer. He had a terrible first four weeks. Uh, his ERA was over seven. His whip was over two, which is shocking. You analyzed Chris Archer for Fangraphs in late April. You determined that uh, it was pretty much bad luck more than anything. In his last two starts, he has looked a lot sharper, a 142 ERA, a whip under 0.8. Is Chris Archer out of the woods for you? I don't think so. And, and you mentioned the last two starts. So he opened the season with uh, an inflated ERA, an inflated whip. He was terrible. And, and the luck element had a lot to do with it. His batting average on balls in play was the second highest in baseball. His home run per fly ball rate was the highest in baseball. So, of course, when you pair those two together for the same pitcher, you're going to end the month with a, a very, very high ERA. So bad luck probably had a lot to do with it. And sure enough, in his last two starts, his bad dip drops to just 172. 
and its home lumber fly ball ratio is always 7.7%. So that just goes to show you how quickly these metrics could change and why you should basically ignore ERA and look at expected ERA metrics. But my concern right now is with his control. Um, his last two starts, he faced Baltimore and Toronto. And in Baltimore, he threw strikes for a change. But unfortunately, that improved control was short-lived because he only threw strikes 52% of the time versus Toronto in his last start. So I'm still concerned that his control has regressed, and you never know how long that might take to return. Still got the strikeout stuff, but with all those sliders, you wonder, is that elbow barking or is he 100% healthy? You don't know. I had a friend of mine uh, say that he thought Archer was back because he had, I think, 10 strikeouts against the Orioles and um, only four, I think, against Toronto, uh, another problem sign. But he said 14 strikeouts over two starts, and I thought, geez, against Baltimore and Toronto, I could probably strike out 11 guys, you know, and I'm almost 60 years old, as that old joke goes. I mean, these are fairly strikeout-prone lineups, and yet here, uh, here against Toronto in particular, four strikeouts plus four walks, I agree with you. I think that Chris Archer represents uh, a fairly high risk. I certainly wouldn't be uh, trying to acquire him. And if I had him on my roster, I might seriously be thinking about offering him around my league, saying, see, he's back, and hoping that somebody will buy into the promise rather than the what looks like the current reality. The, the walks really concern me as well. Um, Mike Podhorzer, during the season, I always ask our experts to talk about some studs and duds for the balance of the season. Um, no real rationale here or anything. A stud is a guy you'd like to have on your roster basically duds guys of course you won't uh studs would be guys you'd like to acquire and duds would be like guys you'd like to trade away i uh, start with hitters we move to pitchers in a minute but let's start in the american league who's a stud hitter for you so here's your perfect by low candidate kyle seager he's gone off to a miserable start a sub 200 batting average he actually sports the lowest babbit among all qualified hitters in baseball however he actually has hit a career-low rate of pop-ups. And, of course, you want to avoid the pop-up because pop-ups get caught the majority of the time, and it's the worst possible batted ball. It's essentially like a strikeout. So if you're avoiding the pop-up, then your ball and play should fall for hits, and Seegers hasn't. He's also going to the opposite field at a career-high rate, which is a good thing because then – fielders are not going to be shifting as often against him, which have hurt in the last couple of years. The advent of shifting has really hurt hitters that pull the ball on the ground often. So that's going to prevent defenses from shifting against him. And all his metrics look good. His hard percentage is good. Um, everything is in line with historical rates, except for the bad hits. So I think that Babbitt is going to rebound to get back to normal. He's showing the same power he always has. And he'll be back to normal, and it'll take a while for his results to show it just because of how low he's starting out. So your window of buying low might last another week or so, and uh, he'll be good to go from there. I'm interested that you mentioned the defensive shifting. There was an article, actually a few articles in the mainstream press over the last couple of weeks drawing attention to the uh, whole idea of defensive shifting and how it's starting to creep its way into the outfield as well as the infield. We're very familiar with the three guys between first and second routine that David Ortiz sees in every plate appearance and, and, and a few other players as well. 
But now it's starting to look like teams are looking at also putting fairly extreme shifts in the outfield. And if Kyle Seager can hit to all fields in the outfield, that is a, a definite plus. What do you think of the possibility of defensive shifts in the outfield as well as the infield? Is that something we're going to be seeing a lot of? Well, it makes sense to shift your players into perfect defensive alignment based on the hitter's tendencies. However, I don't think that as many hitters show any sort of pull or oppo tendencies to the outfield as much as the infield. So although there probably are players that do have some extreme tendencies, I think that list is a lot smaller, so I think there's going to be a lot fewer reasons to shift the outfield than the infield. Boy, I wish I could remember who they mentioned as far as hitters who are like that, but they showed their uh, on-field heat maps for where their batted balls go, and some of them it's astonishing how how much it's like a dead pull to right field or, or to right center, plus there's this little pocket of, uh, of opposite field bloopers down the left field line, and so they, they advise stick your three fielders in those spots. Also, some of the articles are even suggesting that teams are going to reduce the number of infielders and increase the number of outfielders because they think that that's what, that, that's what makes sense given the amount, the frequency of balls where they're hit. It's going to be very interesting over the next little while, and I can't help but think they're going to try to figure out some way of regulating it. Yeah, well, I think Brian Dozier, Jose Bautista, off the top of my head, are guys that probably the outfield shifts would make sense for. Both of them are extreme pull hitters to the outfield. And so, just off the top of my head, without doing any research whatsoever, I think those are guys that you may have heard as as names as potentials. And we digress. Uh, Let's move back to the stud hitters. How about a stud hitter for you in the National League? So here's a guy, uh, a bit different than Seager. Seager's a, a by-low guy, but Domingo Santana of the Brewers was a preseason breakout candidate. He hasn't done a whole lot to justify his uh, breakout candidacy just yet. However, I think that is going to come, and I'm just as optimistic about him now as I was beginning of the season. He's actually leading all of baseball in fly ball exit velocity which, although it hasn't shown up yet in his power, I think it's a good sign moving forward because, of course, if he hit the ball harder, it's going to go farther and more likely to clear the fence. Now, the problem here is that his fly ball rate is extremely, extremely low. It's actually the second lowest fly ball rate in baseball, which is not what you would expect from uh, a big power hitter like Domingo Santana. And the problem, if you want to call it a problem, is that his line drive rate is the highest in baseball. So he's trading fly balls for line drives, which in real baseball is okay. It's probably going to prop up his batting average, but it's unsustainable. His line drive rate is going to come down. He's going to hit more fly balls. Those are going to turn into home runs. And he still has that 25 to 30 home run upside, especially given his home park, Miller Park, which is very favorable to hitters. I had a guy explain to me once that having an uppercut swing, especially a modest uppercut swing, actually generates more ground balls than fly balls because you're topping the ball more often. Have you heard anything about that? Huh. That's interesting. I have not. You would think an uppercut swing would lead to more fly balls, but I guess it makes sense. Or maybe we're just describing a bad hitter. (laughs) Because if you have an uppercut swing and you still can't hit fly balls and you're getting on top of the ball, that just sounds like a bad hitter to me. I guess so. Uh, who's a dud hitter in the American League for you? A guy that you're not interested in that you'd trade if you could? 
I think Lorenzo Cain is in that risky territory. He had a breakout fantasy last year, but this year it hasn't gone so well. His exit velocity down five miles an hour from last year, which doesn't sound significant, but since exit velocity generally ranges from 85 to about 100 miles an hour, it's a pretty small range. Five miles per hour is rather significant. His uh, isolated slugging percentage is at a career low. His swinging strike percentage is at a career high. Strikeout rate is at a career high. And he's been very reliant on his batting average on balls and play the last two seasons. So if he doesn't get that Babbitt block again, and he's not showing the power, then you're basically left with Lorenzo Cain pre-2015, which was a decent player, but nowhere near the top pick that he was coming off of last year's breakout campaign. And in the final hitter slot, we've got a dud hitter from the National League. Christian Yelich. And this is not because I think he's going to be bad or a disappointment, but I think that all these years we keep expecting that power breakout. We keep waiting for it, wanting it. But I don't think it's going to come. The problem is the first week of the season, his fly ball rate was at 28%, and everybody thought, oh, wow, he's changing his swing, he's hitting more fly balls. Here comes 20 home runs finally. Well, sure enough, for the season, it's right back down to 15%, which is exactly where it was last year. And this has been a problem. It's good for batting average because he's hitting so many ground balls and he has good speed. But with only 15% of your balls in play going into the air, you're just not going to hit many home runs. And he only has one steal as well. And we used to count on him for 15 to 20 steals. I don't know if we can count on that anymore. So if he's not going to have a power spike and he's not going to be stealing bases, then he's not going to do a whole lot for you outside of batting average. Can't steal first base is what they say. Uh, Mike Podhorzer's stud hitters, Kyle Seeger of Seattle and Domingo Santana of Milwaukee. His duds, Lorenzo Cain of Kansas City, Christian Yelich of Miami. Let's move over to the mound now, Mike. Uh, who's a stud pitcher in the American League for you? Michael Pineda has been killing all of my teams, but let's look underneath the surface. We find a 359 BABIP, a 21.9 home run per fly ball rate. Both of those numbers are definitely going to regress. His velocity is good. It's actually matched what he's been at last year, which is a good sign because velocity tends to increase as the season progresses. So he's going to end up with higher velocity than last year. And we always worry about injuries and, and his shoulder. So the fact that his velocity is good means that he's completely healthy, most likely. His uh, swinging strike percentage is actually the fourth highest in baseball, and it represents a surge from last year. And so his underlying skills are great. I think it's just been the bad defensive support, uh, some issues with gopharitis and home runs. But I think that will improve, and I think he'll be able to get his ERA into the low threes. How about a stud pitcher in the National League? Alex Wood has been uh, a disappointment this year. He was a disappointment last year. But Alex Wood's velocity on his fastball is back up above 90 miles per hour. His ground ball rate is around 60%. He's killing a lot of worms. And he was on my expected strikeout rate, surger list. And uh, right now what's killing him is a low strand rate. It's about 60%. That should rebound. He's never had issues with strand rate in the past. Once that gets up, if his strikeout rate does indeed spike, like my 
metrics suggest, and thanks to the increased velocity, I think his ERA can get down into the mid-threes, and he should be pretty cheap to acquire. In the American League, who's a pitcher who's a dud for you? Man, you're Donald Ventura. Talking about throwing strikes and control issues, we talked a lot about that with Chris Archer, with Cole Hamels, but your Donald Ventura seems like a ticking time bomb. 20 walks in 27 innings. This is a guy who had an elbow issue a couple of years ago. Last year he missed time with inflammation in his forearm. I mean, I don't know what else would be screaming injury to me than that. So I would be extremely nervous if I was a Jordano Ventura owner, and I would be surprised if he didn't hit the DL with some sort of an elbow issue at some point this year. And wrapping up, how about a dud pitcher in the National League? Gio Gonzalez, another one that's showing some signs of uh, problems physically. His velocity down two miles an hour. His strike percentage is his lowest since 2011, and yet his walk rate is at a career low. He's throwing fewer strikes, and yet he's walking fewer batters. That doesn't match up. His current ERA, 115, thanks to a tiny BABIP and home run per fly ball rate. Both of those metrics are going to increase. His ERA is going to rise, and I'm not sure if he's fully healthy. So he has really been concerning with those red flags. So he's a prime style high candidate. Mike Podhorzer's pitchers in the American League, his stud Michael Pineda of the Yankees in the National League, Alex Wood of the Dodgers, his dud pitchers in the American, Jordano Ventura of Kansas City, and in the National League, Gio Gonzalez of Washington. Boy, Mike, this has been a blast. Uh, Tell us where listeners can follow you and keep track of what you're doing out there. On Twitter, it's at Mike Podhorzer, and you can read all about my ebook, Projecting X 2.0, How to Forecast Baseball Player Performance, at projectingx.com, and you can find me on Fangraphs in the Rotograph blog. Can you get the ebook at Amazon or any of those kind of places online? You can, absolutely. It's on Amazon, it's on Barnes & Noble, but I make a little more money on projectingx.com, and of course you want to support me. So check it out on projectingx.com, and then review it on Amazon. That's the best strategy. <laughs> and it's always about the best strategy. Mike, thanks a million for doing this. It's a real pleasure. I'll have to have you back later on this year. Thanks, Patrick. Definitely look forward to coming back. Mike Podhorzer writes for Fangraphs frequently and intelligently, and his book, Projecting X Version 2.0, is available at projectingx.com. And buy it there. Don't go to Amazon. Amazon's a big, huge company. They don't need the help. We have our Baseball HQ commentaries coming up, but first, let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long, with content across a wide range of great information. This week, Playing Time Today roster analysis has looked at the beneficiaries of the Alex Rodriguez injury. As you heard earlier, all our skills columns are looking at April base performance values. And in the GM's column, Ray Murphy reports on the May 2016 edition of the Baseball HQ staff survey. I took part in this, and it's a bunch of questions about hot starting players, both batters and pitchers, and how we think they'll do the rest of the way. 
During the season, BaseballHQ.com also has regular roster coverage and analysis, both day-to-day and looking ahead. We have facts and flukes performance validation. We have daily matchups reports and a daily fantasy dashboard, and full minor league scouting. And of course, there are the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Rockies shortstop prospect Brendan Rogers is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Colorado Rockies' Trevor Story has been a revelation this spring, so it will be interesting to see what the club does with top shortstop prospect Brendan Rogers. The Rockies made Rogers the third overall pick in the 2015 draft, and some talent evaluators felt that he had the highest upside of any player in the draft last year. To be sure, there were those who were less enamored with Rogers, and pre-draft he did get dinged a bit for his work ethic and a perceived lack of hustle, but his raw tools were never in question, highlighted by his plus raw power. Rogers had a solid pro debut last year, hitting 273 with three home runs and 143 at bats, and he followed that up with a solid spring and is currently hitting 364 with a 440 on base percentage and an impressive 636 slugging percentage. He has nine doubles and five home runs and 88 at bats for low A Asheville. Rogers is an average defender, and if Trevor Story is able to solidify his hold on the shortstop position, Rogers could be moved to second base or the outfield once he reaches the majors. Regardless of what position he plays, fantasy owners should keep an eye on Brendan Rodgers as he has the potential to be an impact player down the road. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with our comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups coverage with prospects like Cincinnati left-handed starting pitcher John Lamb, Oakland left-handed starter Sean Manea, Detroit right-handed starter Michael Fulmer, and many many more call-ups. Add it all up. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, then BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing those at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at what happens when Shin Soo Chu returns to Texas and the upcoming changes to the rotation in Cincinnati. And here to tell you all about it is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. There's a log jam coming shortly to Texas's outfield when Shin Su Chu comes back from the disabled list, which recent reports suggest could be later in May. Chu hit the DL with a calf injury on April 10th, which forced the club to call up top prospect Nomar Mazzara, and Mazzara hasn't looked back. He's hitting 325 with three homers through his first 80 major league at-bats, which is going to put pressure on the Rangers' brain trust to not only keep Mazzara in the majors, but in the starting lineup on a regular basis. Assuming Mazzara's hot bat stays in the lineup when Chu returns, it could mean reduced playing time for Delano DeShields and potentially Ian Desmond. After a dreadful 2015, Desmond has somewhat turned things around with five steals and three homers through the beginning of May and a respectable 321 on base percentage through 94 at-bats. Desmond's contact rate has inched up from 2015's career low of 68%, and while he's hitting just 234, the production has been there offensively with Desmond. 
Delano DeShields may be at the highest risk of losing playing time. DeShields has been the team's everyday center fielder, and he has tremendous speed, but he's hitting just 239 with a 316 on base. DeShields has no pop whatsoever, and his contact rate is in the low 70s, which is always a bad sign for a slap hitter. DeShields was recently moved from leadoff to ninth in the order, which could be an early sign that he has the shortest lease of the bunch. Desmond played five games in center field already, so if he can hang there defensively, I'd expect a starting outfield of Chu, Desmond, and Mazzara from left to right. If you're a DeShields owner, you may want to plan ahead and see if anyone in your league is starving for steals. DeShields playing time could be at risk, and now may be the time to move him. To the National League, we head to Cincinnati, where there's significant change coming to the team's starting rotation. BaseballHQ.com's Brian Rudd report on this early last week, noting that Homer Bailey and Anthony Desclafani are due back shortly, while John Lamb has made his rotation debut on May 3rd. Their returns could spell the end for guys like John Moskett, Alfredo Simon, and Dan Straley in the Reds' rotation, which could be a welcome sight given their collective struggles so far this season. Out of the three returnees, Desclafani is the most likely to have an immediate fantasy impact. The 26-year-old's coming off an oblique injury, but his skills were dominant in the second half of 2015 with a 353 expected ERA, 4.6 command ratio, and an elite 126 base performance value, or BPV. If Desclafani is fully healthy when he returns, there could be big-time profit looming. Bailey and Lamb have up some upside as well, but they carry more short-term risk than Desclafani. Bailey, who Reds fans probably don't want to be reminded, is under a $105 million contract, has only pitched 11 innings since the 2014 season thanks to Tommy John surgery. Bailey posted attractive skills from 2012 through 2014, but we can't expect him to instantly return to that level this season. Bailey does make for a strong second-half play, however, assuming he can work out the kinks when he returns. And finally, Lamb was once a top prospect with Kansas City. He struggled with elbow problems in 2011 and 2012 and recently had back surgery last December. His pitch counts are back in the triple digits with velocity, though he only hit 88 on the gun in a PQS1 season debut against San Francisco. Lamb finished strong in 2015 with 58 strikeouts in just 50 innings with a 112 BPV. Regaining velocity will be key if Lamb is to make a splash in 2016. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for our Frequent Flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are St. Louis first baseman Matt Adams and Arizona pitcher Zach Curtis. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky who is currently the best pitch hitter in Major League Baseball? We'll give you a couple hints. First, he is currently batting 500 as a pitch hitter and has, so far, recorded more hits than any other pitch hitter in Major League Baseball in 2016. Second, he's one of two frequent flyers we'll profile this week, including a Diamondbacks pitcher has made a huge leap. But before we head to the desert, let's talk about St. Louis Cardinals first baseman Matt Adams, who boasts a 356 career average as a pinch hitter, well above his 276 career batting average. I know what you're thinking. Why should we even mention pinch hitters? How do they have any fantasy relevance whatsoever? 
Did you know that the Cardinals pinch hitters had more home runs, seven, than the entire Atlanta Braves team total? That's right, Cardinals pinch hitters have seven home runs, and the Atlanta Braves, as a team, have only six for the entire 2016 season. What a power outage. Didn't Trevor Story hit seven home runs this first week? Maybe we should mention that Matt Adams, with three home runs, is currently tied with Atlanta's leader, Freddie Freeman, who also has three home runs. Yet Freeman did 95 at-bats, and Matt Adams hit three home runs and 57 at-bats. That's significant because Matt Adams, who slugged two bombs in the past week alone, only hit five home runs total in 2015 due to missing over three months with a torn quad. But Matt Adams did hit 15 home runs in 2014, and he slugged 17 and only 296 at-bats in 2013. However, it's important to remember that Matt Adams, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Despite our 2016 projection of 17 home runs and a linear weighted power index of 160 for 2016, placing him among the slugging elite, Matt Adams' current contact rate of 65% is well below the 75% low-end standard that we use to define the hackers of society. Use him in a pinch, especially while his home run to fly ball ratio is hovering near 20%. Speaking of pinches... That's probably what Zach Curtis was doing, pinching himself. We received the call to report to the Arizona Diamondbacks on April 30th. After all, not many pitchers skip double-A and triple-A entirely. That's right, the 23-year-old left-handed reliever, born on the 4th of July in 1992, with a 5.23 ERA in eight games of the California League this year, not the Pacific Coast League, which is AAA, but the California League, which is Class A Advanced, received the call to leapfrog AA and AAA entirely and go straight to the major leagues. Hmm. So what happened? Well, he hasn't allowed an earned run his first week in the majors. Granted, it's a small sample size, but here's what's even more interesting. He hasn't even allowed a hit. In fact, on Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, facing the Miami Marlins, he retired all four batters they faced, striking out two. Again, it's a small sample size, but it's certainly worth noting. He should definitely be on your radar. In three seasons of the Miners, including eight games at Visalia this season, Zach Curtis has saved 49 games, 33 in 2015, and compiled a career ERA of 168 in the Miners. Not to mention, his career knob in the Miners was 13.75, where 7 is what we consider to be among baseball's best. His career control rate in the Miners was 2.9, just slightly above the 2.8 benchmark we look for in elite pitchers. Plus, his career command ratio, or strikeouts-to-walk ratio, was 4.8, where we look for a command ratio of 3 or higher to indicate potential top performers. Of course, keep in mind that when we're talking about Zach Curtis's career numbers, his career only extends to 2014 when the Diamondbacks selected him in the sixth round of the 2014 draft, 180th overall, so there really isn't a lot of data accumulated yet. Even so, he's in the majors now, and we might see some fireworks from both Matt Adams and Zach Curtis, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our frequent flyers commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale that's centered on zero. 
Pitchers rated at one or higher are strong bets to start. Those under minus one are strong bets to sit. In between, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance and the situation. Here with a look at a Saturday American League matchup between Twins right-hander Ricky Nolasco and White Sox ace lefty Chris Sale and a Sunday National League tilt pitting the Mets righty Matt Harvey against San Diego righty Andrew Kashner as well as two more weekend matchups is BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. It's Mother's Day this Sunday, so we'll take a look at some starters that only a mother could love, and one who would make any mother proud. Beginning with the American League on Saturday in Chicago, his mother may have always believed in him, but most fantasy owners are hesitant to trust the apparent 2016 rebound of Minnesota's Ricky Nolasco. His matchup rating of minus 040 is based on his 2015 stats, which were marred by an elbow injury and only covered 37 innings pitched. The 33-year-old Nolasco seems to have rejuvenated himself, putting up a career-high base performance value of 137 over his 33 innings pitched so far in 2016. The only red flag seems to be his three walks in those 33 innings for a control rate of 08. His previous best was 1.8 in 2008. Nolasco's whip is under 1, which is elite territory reserved for the likes of Chicagoans Jake Arrieta and Chris Sale, who is going against Nolasco in this one. Only four parks in the American League are better than U.S. Cellular for left-handed batters to hit home runs, and only two are better for right-handed batters. Nolasco's control rate of 08 will be tested in the major's worst park for pitchers walking opposing hitters. The White Sox have the major's best record versus right-handers, the second-best record overall, and the second-best record versus teams below 500, the fifth-best record at home, and the third-lowest runs allowed per game. Sorry, Mrs. Nolasco. Maybe we'll begin to believe in your son if he puts up a respectable outing under those circumstances, but we'd still expect his balloon to burst eventually. Chris Sale also has a whip of 08 this season, but he owns a 2014 season-long whip under 1 and has never had a whip over 114. Sale's current base performance value, coincidentally 114, would be a career low. Five of six starts from Sale have been PQS dominant, and his average PQS score is 4. His matchup rating is 109, and the Twins are no match for Sale. They have the worst record in the majors against teams at or above 500, having yet to win one in 15 tries. The worst road record, the second worst record overall, and the fifth worst run differential. Sale will make his mother proud in this one. Only his mother could love the Rangers' Martin Perez in his Mother's Day matchup on the road against Detroit's Justin Verlander. Perez's matchup rating of minus 154 is a strong sit recommendation. Even a hit rate of 25% and a strand rate of 76% can't help Perez. His whip is still 137. In 35 innings pitched thus far this season, Perez has 18 strikeouts and 18 walks for a command ratio of 1-0. Perez has an average PQS score of 2 and his base performance value is minus 9. Comerica Park plays as a relatively neutral venue, suppressing home runs for both left-handed batters and right-handed batters by 5%. We know that Justin Verlander is loved by more than just his mother, since he and Kate Upton announced their engagement this week. In the start immediately following that announcement, Verlander put up his second PQS disaster of the season by allowing seven earned runs for the second time. Deuces seem to be wild for Verlander, as he also has two PQS dominant starts and two PQS twos. His strand rate of 58% is hurting him, and his whip of 144 on 13 walks in 35 innings pitched is a double whammy. 
His matchup rating of 014 is too risky to recommend for anything other than a wild card. In the National League on Saturday, Pirates lefty Jeff Locke takes a matchup rating of minus 067 into Bush Stadium in St. Louis to face Cards right-hander Adam Wainwright, who has a matchup rating of 063. Locke is coming off two consecutive PQS dominant starts after three PQS disasters. He inexplicably shut out the Rockies for six innings in Coors Field after allowing eight earned runs in three innings against the Padres in Petco Park. Over 27 innings pitched, Locke has struck out 21 and walked 17 for a command ratio of 1-2. His career-worst control ratio of 5-7 and hit rate of 36% have combined to produce a whip so ugly only a mother could love it at 184. Don't tell her, but Locke is earning minus $5 for his 5x5 owners and is a definite sit. Bush Stadium depresses left-handed batters home runs by 13% and right-handed batters home runs by 10%, but Locke needs a lot more help than that. St. Louis has the second-best run differential in the majors, scoring a run and a half more than it allows per game. The Pirates are about even in runs scored and runs allowed per game. And the teams are about even in most other relevant team metrics. Wainwright has gone between five and six innings in each of his six starts, but he's allowed at least three earned runs in every one, and as many as seven. Don't tell his mother, but he's no longer an ace. His strand rate of only 57% has hurt, but so have career worsts in whip, control, dominance, command, and base performance value. He's costing his fantasy owners minus $11 in rotor value and is worse than his matchup rating suggests. Stay away from him for now. And in our final matchup this weekend, we have the National League contest where Matt Harvey of the Mets meets San Diego's Andrew Kashner at the newly nearly neutral Petco Park. That's right. In 2015, Petco enhanced home runs from both sides of the plate by 10% while suppressing overall run production by 7%. Harvey has looked anything but the young phenom who went one inning too far in last year's World Series. In 34 innings, he's walked 11 and struck out only 25 for a command ratio of just 2-3 and a whip of 156. He's logged four PQS disaster starts in six outings. His hit rate of 35% is elevated by six or seven percentage points from his career norm so far, and his strand rate of 70% is lower than his career mark of 77% entering the season. But that wouldn't account for all his problems. His dominance is down dramatically so far this season, and the trend is ominous. 10-6 in 10 games started as a rookie. Then 9-6 in 26 games started, followed by 8-9 in 29 games started, and now only 6-6 in 6 games started. Sorry, Mrs. Harvey, but your son's matchup rating of 065 is a risk-reward wildcard. The Padres have pretty much been patsies so far, scoring nearly a run less than they allow per game and sporting the sixth worst records overall versus teams at or above 500 and against right-handers. San Diego is under 500 at home, but the Mets are even worse on the road. However, New York has a stellar fourth best record versus teams below 500 and fifth best record against right-handers. Kashner comes in with a matchup rating of 048, and he's in the same boat as Harvey, trying to recapture the glory days of his recent past. Kashner had an excellent run of 45 starts in 2013 and 14, but is as disappointing so far this year as he was last year. Kashner is averaging a PQS 2 over 6 starts, with two ones, two twos, and two threes. His dominance rate of 8-2 is okay, but Kashner's control rate of 3-9 is a career worst since he became a starter, and his command ratio of 2-1 is well off his 2014 career best of 3-2. 
Kashner's hit rate of 31% and strand rate of 67% are not unlucky, but his first pitch strike rate of 58% and swinging strike rate of just 7% have saddled him with a whip of 142. It would be wise to steer clear of Kashner, even if it makes his mother mad at you. So celebrate Mother's Day this weekend, along with the mother of our only recommended starter, Chris Sale. Commiserate from a distance with the mothers of unloved starters Ricky Nolasco, Martine Perez, Jeff Locke, Adam Wainwright, and Andrew Kashner. And if you like the thrill of high anxiety, you can bite your nails with the mothers of the struggling Justin Verlander and Matt Harvey. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion of baseball and fantasy baseball. This week I'd like to talk about the season just ended on April 30th. When April ended, I gathered performance and skills data for all the batters from May 1st of last season through April 30th of this season. It's still a season. You see, it's 183 days of regular season baseball that just happened to cross an arbitrary boundary between 2015 and 2016. I looked through them for interesting findings, even invented a new metric for batters in the process. To make the study, batters needed 200 plate appearances in the period and 349 batters qualified. I found nine items I thought were interesting enough to report to you. Since there were nine, I was tempted to call them innings, but I was persuaded that was too cute, so instead, let's just call my findings, findings. Finding number one, for ultra-high reliability and playing time, grab corner infielders. Out of the 349 qualifying batters, 75 played at least 150 games. They were led by 30 outfielders, with 22 cornermen, 21 middle infielders, and a couple of DHs. No catchers, which is no surprise. But at the top of the list, only 22 batters played 160 or more games, and 16 of those were corner infielders, 10 first basemen, 6 third basemen. Five were outfielders, including the seemingly indestructible Mike Trout, and just one was a middle infielder. That was Elvis Andrews. It might seem that this kind of information only matters before the draft, and indeed it is worth remembering then. But reliability also matters during the season, and it's surely worth factoring into your trade calibrations when games played are an important part of the currency, and a more recent record seems more useful than previous full seasons. Finding number two. It's hard to find those 40 homer guys. No surprise here, just eight batters had 40 or more taters. Chris Davis of the O's and Nolan Arenado of the Rockies led the way with 49 apiece. Then Bryce Harper, Josh Donaldson, Carlos Gonzalez, Mike Trout, and Jose Bautista. The eighth hitter? A bit of a surprise. Albert Pujols has achy feet and a bum knee, and probably can't remember where he put his bifocals. But he also has had 160 games played since last May 1st, and 43 home runs. Finding number three, it's even harder to find 30 stolen base guys than 40 home run guys. Only seven batters had 30 or more bags since last May 1st, and only six if you count the now-departed D. Gordon out of the equation. Only 19 bag larcenists managed totals in the 20s. More than a third of all qualifying batters had a measly single stolen base or none at all. Finding number four, there are a few surprises in the newly invented category of scrap. I summed up each batter's counting stats, homers, RBIs, runs, and stolen bases, and added hits as a proxy for batting average. 
The result is a new metric I had planned to call Category Roto Aggregate Production. That acronym wasn't too cool, so I added the word scoring at the start and made it into scrap. An average scrap score for batters is just under 300. The scrap elite, the top 10%, are pretty consistently at or above 370 over the last few years. The poorest hitters peak out at about 100 scrap points, and some of them are down around 50. Now, a lot of that is playing time driven. The elite list, it looks like the top two or three rounds of most drafts, but there were a few interesting surprises. Ioannis Cespedes was fifth on the list ahead of Paul Goldschmidt, and way ahead of Mike Trout, who was 14th. Eric Hosmer was on the list, just outside the top 20. Adam Eaton's 20 stolen bases, along with his other overall good results, helped him climb past lead-footed sluggers like Robinson Cano, Prince Fielder, Nelson Cruz, and David Ortiz. They were all on the list as well, but Eaton was more valuable. If you're curious about the bottom 10 scrappers, they were the kind of exceptionally unproductive hitters you might expect. Andrelton Simmons, Marcel Ozuna, J.J. Hardy, Cesar Hernandez, Jace Peterson, Chris Owings, Anthony Ghosts, and Billy Butler. Speaking of Billy Butler finding number 5, surprise, he's not the leader in grounding into double plays. Butler has long been the poster boy for grounding into double plays, but his 22 twin killings over the period barely made the top 10. He tied for ninth on the list with two catchers, Russell Martin and A.J. Przinski, and with a third catcher now playing first base, Joe Maurer. The leading rally killer is Twins third baseman Trevor Plouffe with 28. He just came off the DL, so grab him while you can. Two surprising names on the list, line drive hitter Cano and fleet-footed outfielder Adam Jones. That's what hitting hot grounders will do for you sometimes. Among batters with 500 or more PAs, just four, Curtis Granderson, D.D. Gregorius, Ben Revere, and Delino DeShields, grounded into three or fewer double plays. Finding number six, hitters with more walks than strikeouts are a vanishing breed. Back in 2000, 51 qualifying hitters had more walks than whiffs. In 2010, that number had fallen all the way to 13. In this period... Just eight hitters with more walks than Ks. Ben Zobrist, Jose Bautista, Denard Spann, Bryce Harper, Michael Brantley, Buster Posey, Nori Aoki, and Joey Votto. The aggregate eye ratio was down to 0.40 more than 20 points, and 23 hitters had at least 100 more Ks than walks. In 2000, there were only eight. Finding number seven. On a related matter, big-time walk artists are vanishingly rare. We sometimes rely too much on walk rates as a marker of plate discipline for batting average purposes. Baseball HQ research has shown walk rates are actually fairly useful for projecting power, but not so much for batting average. Oddly then, given the general focus in baseball on power hitting, only 11 hitters had walk rates at or above 15%, led by Joey Votto at 20 Of the group, only Jose Bautista also had a contact rate over 80%. Miguel Sano was a game-worst 57% on the contact list. Meanwhile, 284 of the batters, or 81%, were at or under 10% walk rate, and 66 of those were under 5%. And Kansas City outfielder Paulo Orlando is in a category all his own. In this last calendar season, he's the only batter who has not taken a single walk. Finding number 8. 21 hitters had singles rates over 80%. It's useful for a batter to amass base hits, of course, but if 80% of them are singles, his RBI and runs potential might be limited. 
Over this last calendar season, 21 hitters had singles rates, that is singles divided by base hits, of 80% or more. Ichiro Suzuki was atop the list at 87%, no surprise, closely trailed by Jose Iglesias and Michael Bourne. The awful Elcides Escobar is also on the list, along with a bunch of other middle infielders and second catchers. If there's a surprise here, it must be that Howie Kendrick, who has a bit of a reputation as a gap doubles guy, scored just 82%. At the bottom of the list, 15 hitters had singles rates at 50% or lower, led by Chris Carter at just 39% of all hits being singles. The interesting name on this list is Jackie Bradley Jr. of the Red Sox. He had just 77 hits in 344 plate appearances, but 45 out of those 77 were for extra bases. The kid is figuring it out, I'm telling you. Finding number nine, some names on the extremes of the hit rate list will surprise you. Hit rate is the HQ version of BABIP. We just express it in percentage terms instead of a decimal figure like a batting average. The elite top 10% batters were at or above 35% hit rate, and again, most of them will come as no surprise. We expect to see high hit rates from such smokers as Miguel Sano, Paul Goldschmidt, Chris Bryant, Joey Votto, and Miguel Cabrera. Names you might not expect are Joey Butler, Stephen Piscotti, Kelby Tomlinson, Francisco Cervelli, Blake Swihart's in the minors, Gregor Blanco, and Gung-Ho Jong. The bottom 10% of the list comprises the usual suspects, especially catchers like Chris Iannetta, Caleb Joseph, Carlos Ruiz, Diana Navarro, and Mike Zunino. But I was surprised to see the low end of the hit rate also included Jason Wirth, Brian Dozier, Jose Bautista, and again, Albert Pujols, whose 21% hit rate is less than a point better than banjo hitter Stephen Drew at the very bottom of the list. Depending on how you feel about adding an 88-year-old player, Pujols might represent a dandy buy-low opportunity. So that's it. Remember, a season is just a season, but not always the season you think. And remember also, many of these measures stabilize only after a certain number of at-bats, plate appearances, or balls in play. Batter hit rate, for example, stabilizes only after 800 plate appearances or a full season plus 20%. Before that threshold is reached, the metric is more prone to small sample variability. At the other end of the spectrum, home run per fly ball rate stabilizes after just 50 fly balls. So be careful about imputing too much into all of this, especially for younger players who lack sufficient track records. Next week, pitchers. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 6th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 23 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest for this first full Friday edition of the show, Mike Podhorzer from Fangraphs and the author of the ebook Projecting X 2.0. Mike was a first-time guest here at Baseball HQ Radio, and I hope you agree he hit it out of the park for us this week. We'll be sure to have Mike back often. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. 
I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our Friday feature guest expert will be USA Today's senior fantasy editor, Steve Gardner. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.